0: This is Eyewitness News Up Close.
1: Four days before Election Day, the New York primary and Cynthia Nixon trailing big time in the polls and in money she's raised. But she remains optimistic and campaigning in her bid to try to defeat two-time incumbent Governor Andrew Cuomo with a populist message that in some parts of the country is catching on. This morning, we talked to the Democratic challenger. But first, 1.1 million New York City school students starting school last Wednesday, the start of the first full new year for the new school's chancellor, Richard Carranza. So, what are his plans, and how will he deal with the tough and controversial issues like making campuses more desegregated? Chancellor Carranza is our guest this morning. And good morning, everyone. Welcome to Up Close. I'm Bill Ritter, our first guest. Already a veteran guest on Up Close, the Chancellor of the New York City School System, Richard Carranza and Chancellor, thank you for joining us.
2: Hey, thanks for the invitation. So
1: so what's it like? You know, you were on the job four months and you sort of got your feet wet, learned where the restrooms were and where the coffee pot was and all that <laughs> stuff. Now you started a new what's the difference? Would you have rather started your the job right at the semester, first semester, or would you have rather had this? Run-up period.
2: No, those the the four months, four and a half month run-up period is invaluable. I got to uh, get out into the community, get to know the community, start to develop a context for what is the New York City public schools. Uh, it was great. So now launching into my first full school year, uh, it's like we had a full head of steam going into this head of steam going into this uh, launch of the school year.
1: You took over a school system uh, that was headed by Chancellor Carmen Fariña, uh, who was a beloved figure, and you inherited a lot of things. Some things you wanted to change. Some some things you we wanted to keep. Um is that a hard thing to maneuver where well, you want to set your own tone, but you also have to respect the path?
2: Well, the good thing is that, you know, the schools aren't broken. So it's not like, you know, we had to, you know, replace the tires and the engine and, and, and get a new paint job. There some great things that Chancellor uh initiated and we have been continuing on through. I think every leader has a vision and, you know, I'm a product of my experience as well. So applying my experience to what's already here, understanding the context, getting briefed and understanding and learning what the department, of education is and then aligning that to what you know our mayor has had an equity and excellence agenda now for his two terms uh, so everything the good news everything aligns now our challenge opportunity is how do we make it deeper how do we make it more systemic uh, and then how do we use data to actually track whether or not we're on track or not
1: this is like an aircraft carrier trying to change things this is the biggest school system the, the budget of 28 billion dollars uh, as large as about half larger than about half the state budgets in the country, um, it's hard to make change. What's your first and second and third priorities as you go forward?
2: Well, I think the cornerstone of... Any school system has to be teaching and learning. So we're going to accelerate. We're going to deepen our curriculum and instruction, teaching and learning. Uh, That takes on many, many different aspects. It's uh, how you do professional development. What kind of materials our teachers have. uh, What kind of support systems we're putting into the field, in schools and school communities. Uh, And we're we're really doubling down on what that looks like, making sure that students have high quality materials, but also have high quality instruction. Teachers are supported. Second thing is uh, we, you know, as I've gone around in the five boroughs, I've heard from families across the city of New York uh, that there's some credibility issues with us. Uh, They don't feel that we always communicate as strongly as we should. Uh, So we're really pushing to be very transparent this year. We're we're also going to be communicating in many different ways to our families in their native languages as well. Uh, We're gonna go to the people rather than always having people come to us. So really empowering and connecting with their community. And then the third thing is an equity lens. You have to apply an equity lens in a city as a system, as large as we are in the New York City Department of Education. Not everybody comes to school equally situated Uh, so you have to be able to attend to those differences to make sure everybody is rising to the bar that we've set.
1: Let's talk a little bit about the inequality gap that exists in schools just like it exists in society. How do you deal with that? You don't have any control over the economic social economic status of of the people
2: who are coming to be your students. Yeah that's absolutely right. we do have control is how do we meet those needs once those students get to us in school uh, and, and when I talk about equity I'm not, we're not talking about lowering the bar for anybody but What we're talking about is recognizing that there are challenges that students and families bring to school uh, how we partner with uh, municipal agencies how we partner with community-based organizations how we partner with other like partners and mitigate those uh, those challenges only give students a better platform on which to perform
1: because if we don't deal with these inequity problems and situations and stark realities. Mm-hmm. Uh, those kids are not going to get a good education. They're not going to go become productive citizens. They're not going to graduate. They're not going to go to college. They're not going to graduate college. They won't be there to fund your Social Security and everyone else's Social Security.
2: Right. So the, the the very future economic viability of New York City is sitting in our classrooms right now. 1.1 million students. So we either invest now, and I'm really proud of the fact that this this mayor and this city council has invested now. We're still working in the legislature to kind of up what they need to do, uh, but if we don't invest now, we will most assuredly pay more later.
1: And part of your strategy has been, and we've, everyone talks about it, a segregated system is, is, is the criticism by many people. Um, part of that is is where people live, and mm-hmm. other parts of the city are more, are more desegregated than others. Um, how do you deal with that? And then the flip side of that, and you've heard this because you've been the butt of some of the criticism, how do you deal with that when you try to equalize things? You just say, we're not lowering the bar, you want to raise all ships. Mm-hmm. But the people who are up here, who are getting advanced placements, how do you give those kids uh, the challenges they need while bringing everyone
2: else up? Well, you're not talking about lowering any kind of academic standard, and there's, uh, you know, plethora of research. You know, my opinion is my opinion. Yours is yours. Let's look at the research. Um, the research is really clear that when you integrate schools you don't lower academic standards for anyone so it's a misnomer out there and quite frankly it's a red herring uh, the, the fact of the matter is is that for decades in New York City we have had uh, a system of barriers uh, to students being able to go to schools in some cases right around the corner from where they live uh, so what we've ended up doing is creating a system of has and have-nots so I'm asking the question uh, we as New Yorkers Do we believe in public schools? Uh, Overwhelmingly, I've heard yes. Uh, But if we believe in public schools, and the schools belong to everyone in the public, then uh, why do we have barriers that are allowing students to go or not go to schools, sometimes, like I said, right around the corner from where they live? I think it's a germane question, and some of these systems and structures have been around for decades.
1: They tried to desegregate schools uh, in many parts of the country by bussing. That's one point. Is that that on the table?
2: Uh, I'm not a believer in busing, quite frankly. I think when you bus uh, kids, it it creates uh, all kinds of unintended consequences. Not the least of which, in New York City, uh, to be honest with you, I don't think we need a bus. I think we have some really robust programming in our schools. I think what we've done, again, is create a system of structures that make it difficult for students to actually um, access all of the great opportunities they have in all of our schools. Interesting. Okay. Uh, Let me talk about a couple of things. um, your relationship with the mayor. How, how is it? Great. I mean, he's, uh, he's my boss, but uh, he hired a chancellor who's a career educator, almost 30 years as an educator. So when it comes to matters of education, we have robust conversations. At the end of the day, I'm the chancellor, and he lets me do my job. you enjoying this? I'm loving it.
1: We, we, we have some uh, physical evidence of that video of you uh, uh, with I know you came on boards with as a mariachi player and singer and uh, you've refused to come on up close and do this but we did get video of you if we could show this uh at the high school what's up bien que estoy afuera
2: Pero el día que yo me muera, sé que tendrás que llorar.
1: Okay, you're a hit. So you're a natural. Now, obviously, you love that, right? When did you start doing that?
2: Uh, I've been singing and playing my catchy music since I was about five, six years old.
1: What do you think that says to the students who see the chancellor, the chancellor of the city schools, doing that in their auditorium?
2: I'm one of them. I could be their uncle. I could be their brother. I could be their cousin. I could be their dad. I mean, it's, uh, you know, I think for all of our students, whether it's, you know, our our, our Latino students or our black students or our Asian students, it doesn't matter. They want to see people that are authentic, and I think parents want to see some it's authentic and in a, in a role of responsibility like mine uh, you know I am who I am so I think it's just who I am and uh, they see what they see is what they get
1: well from the pairs we talked to they seem to like who you are uh, and if, if, you know the, after five months now four and a half months so you're getting some some good grades but you've got a big challenge and you know that we yeah. wish you luck we're all rooting for you thank you the future of all of us is at stake on your shoulders thank you so Richard much. Carranza great to see you all right come back again we'll do um, when we come back again, and Cynthia Nixon make a dent into New York Cuomo. New York Governor Cuomo's huge lead in the polls before next Thursday's Democratic primary. You're going to hear from Ms. Nixon next. Up Close is sponsored by Calvary Hospital, where life continues. Welcome back to Up Close. Cynthia Nixon, one of the former stars of Sex in the City. She became a political activist, and now she has turned candidate. Her first political race in the big time. Against two-term New York Governor Andrew Cuomo, she is way behind the line in the bank account. But the actress, now a populist in the vein of Bernie Sanders, trying to tap into a populist wave among some Democrats across the country. Happened in Florida, where a Bernie Sanders supporter won the Democratic primary for governor. It happened this past week in Massachusetts and a congressional seat, and it happened a couple of months ago again in Queens with the defeat of liberal Congressman Joe Crowley by novice Sanders supporter Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Political reporter Dave Evans speaking to Ms. Nixon.
3: Was it a difficult childhood?
4: Well, so my dad was really troubled. I think that my dad, he was never diagnosed, but I think he was bipolar. Uh, And he was just very unpredictable and given to incredible rages. And my parents had been married nine years before I was born. And my mother always said that if I hadn't been born, she never would have left. But she watched as I got a little bit older and a little bit older and the effect that he and our home was having on me. And so my mother finally decided one night when it got so, so bad, she, she told my dad that he had to leave. And she really saved me when she did that. And I think she saved herself. I don't think she could have saved herself if it had been just for her, but she could do it for me and then secondhand for her.
3: How old were you when you moved I here? Was,
4: I, was, I was six when, when they split up and I was seven when we moved here. It's Yorkville. It's an old Irish-German-Czech neighborhood. This is the Con Ed plant that was right across from where I grew up. And my mother always said, because I was a latchkey kid, you know, if you ever have a problem, if everybody's anybody's ever following you or you're scared, you just go right in there. There's a guard. And you tell him, you know, to protect you.
3: Now, I understand you um, you went to Barnard.
4: I went to Barnard, yeah.
3: Did you have to pay for it yourself? You to- I
4: did. I had to, so uh when i was maybe nine or ten my mother warned me that she was not going to be able to pay for my college and that if i wanted to go and i i needed to find a you know i didn't get full scholarship or whatever that i needed to find a way to pay for it myself so that's why i started what did you do well i started acting when i was 12. when i was 11 i used to walk a little kid in the neighborhood to school. I gave him his breakfast and I got him ready for school.
3: What was your first acting job then?
4: My first acting job? It depends on what you count, but I have probably an after-school special that I did. This is the building where I grew up. Right here?
3: 515.
4: 515. Um, right? You can see. (laughs) It looks pretty much the same. Which floor? Fifth floor. (laughs) Walk-up? Walk-up. Fifth floor. Two, Two apartments on every floor front and rear. We were in the rear, looking out over the power plant. Um, yeah, so this is my block. And uh, my wife, who is uh, athletic and, you know, grew up on Bainbridge Island, where they have lots of green and sports teams and stuff, she, uh, she was always uh, astonished that I would tell her that I would come I would come down here after school sometimes or on a weekend, and I would just hit a, <laughs> a tennis ball back and forth. Against the, against the wall right against yeah. the wall i was an only child not a lot of not a lot of team sports happening yeah so
3: well, would you, would you describe it as a, a as a difficult
4: childhood yeah and it was hard sometimes you know just just my mom and i and actually we were here about 3 years and she discovered that the landlord who was a man that we knew had been lying to us and cheating us on the rent and i remember how angry she was when she figured out what had been happening but i also remember how proud she was that she hadn't taken his word for it and that she'd stood up
3: to him. Does that difficulty when you were six to, let's say, 12 years old, Mm -hmm. when you knew that you had to pay your own way through college, does that motivate you today? Does that push you today to try to make a difference? Yeah,
4: I feel like there are a whole host of ways that my mother stood up, whether it was standing up to my dad and his abuse, whether it was standing up to the landlord, whether it was Standing up to cancer when she got diagnosed with it when I was 13. You know, being proactive and 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 taking on a fight. Um, that yeah, that, that was something that my I guess my mom just taught me to do from an early age. And and for me, there were a whole host of, of political issues that I stood up for. When I'm governor, I'll make saving our subway a top priority. We've got 65% on time, it's the worst the subway ha- has ever been. But
3: if it's going to be fixed, is it half the city's responsibility? No, it is not
4: half the city's responsibility. It is the state's responsibility. The state controls the MTA, and when you look at how much the city already pays in, in terms of taxes and in terms of fares, and also when you look at at least at my proposals, because his proposals are a little in the shadows, hard to tell what his proposals are if he really has some, but my proposals are a millionaire's tax uh, and a a comprehensive congestion pricing and a polluter's tax. The polluter's tax aside, congestion pricing and a millionaire's tax would fall largely on city residents and and people who work in the city. That's where a lot of our millionaires and billionaires live.
3: Do do you personally dislike Governor Cuomo? Or you just don't think he's done a good job?
4: I don't think he's done a good job. But the, the, the level of corruption in his administration is unconscionable. And it's not just because corruption is wrong. It's because it's completely co-opted what our New York government policies are. And, and one of the really galling things to me is that if you're going to be Republican and stand for Republican values, that's one thing. If you're going to be a Democrat, stand for Democratic values, that's another. But to be a Democrat and to say you're progressive, but to spend so much time behind closed doors incentivizing Democratic senators to vote with Republicans and literally handing over control of the Republican state Senate through gerrymandering and through this creation, the IDC, and then saying all of the, these, these progressive things that we haven't enacted here, you would have liked to enact, but sorry the Republicans wouldn't let me do it.
3: Perhaps his belief is partisanship is how we've gotten this mess in the first place, so why not have Republicans and Democrats try to work together?
4: He's not working with the Republicans, he's working for the Republicans. That's the way I see it. His first, in my view. His first allegiance is and always has been, and I think always will be, to his corporate donors and his Republican donors, of whom he has a plethora. Whether you're talking about the Koch brothers, whether you're talking about Donald Trump, whether you're talking about uh, the Mooch, Anthony Scaramucci, the head of Republicans for Cuomo, whether you're talking about Ken Langone. And I think his first. Allegiance is always to corporations and wealthy people who donate to his campaigns and he doesn't want to raise taxes on them. Instead, what he's done is he's given them enormous tax breaks. He's cut $25 billion from state's revenue. And he doesn't want to pay for things like fully funding education or rescuing our New York City subway because he doesn't want to raise taxes on the wealthiest people and that's the way to do
3: it. Your relationship with the mayor, uh, you're close, but you don't necessarily want his endorsement one
4: i mean i really want to run this campaign and i think i've been running this campaign on on its own merits and as a as a standalone person
3: his new chancellor really wants to try to see the schools more integrated yes you're a big advocate for the schools you agree with him
4: i completely agree with him we have some of the most segregated schools in the entire country and that doesn't reflect new york's values it's a betrayal of our kids, and it's terrible if you're talking about investing in New York's future. I think Richard Carranza, our new, our new school's chancellor, um, you know, he's, he's new. We, he's got a long way to go, but I think the way in which he's approached the issue of segregation and the way in which he's speaking so frankly about it and, and calling it for what it is, It it means a lot of people's emotions are running high, but we have to have these conversations about race and we have to have these conversations about segregation and how unequal everything is in our state and in our country and how much of that is race-based.
3: You got into the race uh, March 19th, I think it was. Yes. Has it been worth it?
4: Uh, It has absolutely been worth it. It's It's been an incredible journey. And I think every day, you know, Dozens of times a day, people pass me and they say, I'm voting for you. They say, thank you for running. They say, thank you for talking about New York, what New York should be. Um, And I really believe that there is going to be a big upset next Thursday.
1: Political reporter Dave Evans speaking to Cynthia Nixon. We invited the incumbent, Governor Cuomo, to up close. He did not respond. Coming up next... We talked to political consultant Hank Scheinkoff and ABC News political director Rick Klein about the governor's race and also another incredible week in Washington. What's it really like inside the White House now that the curtain seems to have been pulled back? Welcome back to Up Close, another scathing book about the Donald Trump White House, this time perhaps the darkest shadow yet cast upon life in the Oval Office. Bob Woodward, arguably the most prolific reporter of his time, says that President Trump's top aides and staff call it crazy town around there. They fear for his mental capacity and for what he can do to the country and to the world. The president calling it a work of fiction, another stunner. But is it another ho-hum when it comes to reaction from the American people and from Trump supporters? Joining us to talk about that and more, political analyst Hank Shinkoff here in New York. And from Washington, ABC News political director, Rick Klein. Rick, let me start with you because it wasn't just the book but the day after the book, uh, this anonymous op-ed piece by a senior administration official and everyone in the White House seems to be looking for who it is and no one seems to be talking about the actual words by deep rote uh, about what happened and what it's like in the White House.
5: It is stunning. And one of the startling things about the revelations there is how few people say they're actually surprised by them because you have this this writer coming out and saying, I'm a senior administration official. I'm working with other senior administration officials to frustrate the Trump agenda, to stop his worst impulses, to prevent some of the things the president wants to do from actually happening. People inside his government and there were Republican senators saying almost in unison, we knew about this. Uh, that doesn't mean they're not outraged by the fact that it went public, but they did know about the sentiments. And this, on top of the Woodward book, uh, it's seems to of to, to, uh, certify everything that we have learned in, through reporting over the last year and a half about how chaotic this White House is and how many people inside the White House itself are concerned about the president.
1: I've talked to a lot of people, Hank, who just say, I'm sad about
0: this. I'm sad about the state of the country for this, that this is what the people in the White House believe about the president. They should be both sad and concerned. Um, why? Because he's the most powerful person in the world, regardless of his deficits. He's the President of the United States with tremendous challenges in front of us, and none of them are being met, and his major concern is to find out who did it and to cover the tracks. Uh, there was a report on Thursday this week about, that the First Lady came out and defended yeah. the President. We've never had anything like that.
1: Uh, it, it We've does,
0: never had anything it, like it that. It does remind you sort of, of of the final days kind of mentality around the White House and
1: the Richard Nixon uh, uh,
0: presidents. Well, every day is the final days because they don't know what's going to happen because none of the staff members, many of whom were professional people, don't have any idea what the president's going to do. So so what does it
1: mean? You know, you've been around a lot of presidents and worked with some of them. What does it mean for the inner workings if the the people and the president now doesn't believe that his top aides
0: don't trust him and question his Mm -hmm. mental capacity? What's worse is that there is no infrastructure below that top. He's not filled all those slots. So there's no loyalty from anyone around him, which means he's going to become much more cornered and much more uh, uh, almost a... kind of devolving he's going to this is a uh, very, situation where he can only decline in behavior not increases capacity rick if you had an interview with someone from the
1: top administration and they came to the political director of abc news and said hey we want to go we want to do this i've got to go on camera but you can't use my name you got to put me in shadows would we have run that
5: It's a tough call, and I I hope for for the good of everyone that the Times did its homework here to make sure this is a real person with real concerns. But it isn't an easy journalistic call, even if you make that verification, to allow someone to to have that cloak of anonymity and say these kind of things. You have to be very certain about it, and I think the Times is going to answer a lot of questions about it. Uh, And it it seems unlikely to me that this person is going to be able to shield his or her identity forever. And what that means when the person or if the person's identity is ultimately revealed, uh, I feel like things could only start to devolve from there. I do question the motivations of whoever who, who was trying to do this. Clearly, they, they seem to have done it with the best of intentions to try to let the public know. But what exactly kind of response they expected? The president uh, has explosive anger over this. And as and Hank points out, he's still the president. So what, what exactly got done as a result of this is not clear to me. Very briefly, I want to ask each of you in about
1: 15 seconds a quick pre- prediction on the New York primary coming up this Thursday.
0: Cuomo by, uh, let's see, she gets about uh, 30, he gets the rest of it. All right. He, should he have won by more? Oh, no. That's good. Okay. 30, 30. Anybody, an idiot gets 30, no offense. Rick Klein.
5: I, I don't see any signs that Cuomo is going to go down. I think he's gotten quite a challenge, and I think you saw him respond to that challenge. And uh, it, would be quite, uh, be, it would be quite a manifestation of the sea change we're talking about if there's anything other than a, a solid Cuomo victory. That would be a different
1: kind of sea change, yes. Although the, Ms. Nixon, Cynthia Nixon, does hold that constituency with her, That's sweeping the rest of the country in the smaller, smaller area. All right, thanks. Rick Klein. And Hank Sheinkoff, uh, both of you, a happy new year. And to all those out in our viewership, too, if you celebrate Rosh Hashanah, a happy new year to you, too. Thank you, gentlemen. Before we sign off, a program reminder for you. On Tuesday morning, our annual remembrance of the September 11th terror attacks. We will once again be covering the reading of the name 17 years since our nation was turned upside down by an attack that changed the country, changed our worldview. None of it, perhaps, for the better, except that you'll recall if you lived through it. The country and the world rallied around what happened, rallied around us. There was a collective mourning here and a collective call to action. We seemed united back then, something that today seems indeed so long ago. My honor to once again anchor our coverage. It begins at 825 on Tuesday morning. And that's going to do it for this edition of Up Close. Tiempo with Joe Torres is next. If you missed any of today's programs, I will post it on my Facebook page Tuesday when I come back from the Russia show holiday. Thank you all for watching. I'm Bill Ritter, and for all of us here at Channel 7, enjoy the rest of your weekend.